everyone. This is Kate Stanton, host of the Pulse podcast. In this episode, I sat down with the co-founders of Equip, Christina Safran and Aaron Parks. Equip provides virtual evidence-based eating disorder treatment. The company has expanded rapidly over the last few years, and in February 2022, it raised a $58 million Series B round from the Shernan Group, Tire Capital, General Catalyst, and other existing investors. Prior to founding Equip, Christina co-founded and served as CEO of Project Heal, a nonprofit focused on expanding access to eating disorder treatment. Erin worked in academic medicine as a clinical psychologist and leader at the UC San Diego Eating Disorder Clinic, a preeminent institution in treating and researching eating disorders. In this episode, Erin, Christina, and I discuss how they met, why eating disorders are brain disorders, Equip's treatment model and how it's raising the standard of care, and tips they have on starting a company. Christine and Aaron, welcome to The Pulse. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We're thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Let's begin how we start most of our episodes of The Pulse, which is with an icebreaker. So Christine, I'll have you go first. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? This is a fun one. So I at first wanted to be an actress when I grew up. Um, and then that sort of shifted into a TV correspondent, which is kind of fun now that we uh, just announced Katie Couric joining as an advisor <laughs> and investor, because I'll, I'll have to let her know that that was, that was once my dream. That really shows how precocious Christina was as a kid that she knew what a TV correspondent was as a child. <laughs> Well, my mom did work for ABC, so <laughs> maybe that was part of it. But yeah, to like hear fun stories and really understand what's going on in the world and being able to share them with people. But I, I definitely think I use some of the public speaking, you know, educating people is is definitely something I brought in, brought into this career. Now you're doing an interview, which is kind of like a TV correspondent, sort of. So I love that. Erin, how about you? I wanted to be an author. So I really love to write. And I you know those paint your own ceramic places. Well, they've been around forever. And I remember I painted a parrot at one of them. And so I made this whole children's book series up about this parrot. And yeah, I thought I wanted to be an author. Do you still do any any writing? I absolutely love to write. So I still write a lot just kind of for myself. It's how I process or how I get all the words out of my head so that I'm not so chatty or so worried. And yes, I would love to one day write a book. I love I love both of those career paths, which aren't necessarily where you are today. Erin, do you want to start and walk us through your career before Equip? Yeah, I had a bit of a, a twisty, turning journey. Uh, when I graduated from college in 2002, we just had the Enron scandal zero consultants came to our university to interview. It was a really hard time to get a job. Um, and I ended up landing a job marketing Broadway shows while they toured, but in very, very tertiary markets like Hagerstown, Maryland and Columbus, Missouri. I was really excited about this. I'd studied marketing and communications in undergrad, but I had also taken a lot of science courses, biology and chemistry and calculus. And I wasn't sure 
how to take my love of health and science and medicine and turn it into a job. I went into marketing and promotions, but within just a couple of months, I knew I didn't like it. So I started taking night classes in neuropsychology of all things and made a very strong pivot. So one year after I started that Broadway job, I took a job doing neuroimaging research at the NIH. And I just fell in love with research. I studied how brains reorganized as a result of either seizures or strokes in young kids. And that started kind of my 10-year neuroimaging research career. It brought me out to San Diego where I got my PhD in clinical psychology with a specialty in neuropsychology. And I'd always known with every fiber of my being that I wanted to be a parent. And I had read that one of the highest quality of life for a working parent was being a research professor. So I'm like, fantastic. But around 2008, when the recession hit, it affected everything. And political administrations also affect the funding cycles at NIH. And it stopped being such a, well, certainly wasn't an easy job applying for grants. And so when I went off to residency up in San Francisco, I pivoted and started thinking more about clinical work. I was off cycle for fellowship after that ended because I did give birth to my first child. And so I called all my friends in grad school and said, hey, do you know anyone who's hiring off-cycle fellows? And they said, uh, the UC San Diego Eating Disorder Center is. I'm like, I don't know if I want to work in eating disorders. Like, I think you'll really like it. And so I was really fortunate. I took a fellowship there, got, received excellent, excellent clinical training from truly some of the best providers of evidence-based care and eating disorders. But what I also got was a wonderful mentorship from the founder and lead of the clinic, uh, Dr. Walter Kay, who really cares about the business of mental health and understood it. And so that really kind of set me on my, I think, another eight-year journey at UC San Diego, I got a faculty position, but really got to think about the business of mental health and clinical operations at the Eating Disorder Clinic there. Thank you for sharing that, Erin. And, and while it might not be a straight line or as twisty, turny as, as you called it, it does make a lot of sense based on where you are today and how each of those experiences played a role in informing the next step. So how about, how about you, Christina? So, you know, I kind of joke that I've been working in eating disorders for my whole entire life. It definitely feels true. So diagnosed with anorexia at 10 years old, uh, struggled throughout my adolescence, was really fortunate to have access to family-based treatment, the leading and only evidence-based treatment for eating disorders, which we will talk about. That got me on the path to recovery, but, you know, quickly learned that 80% of the 30 million Americans with eating disorders don't get treatment and less than 1% actually have access to treatment that works. And so this has been really my life's mission since I recovered to make sure that that's not the case. Uh, initially started a nonprofit, uh, Project Heal, to raise money for people who couldn't afford treatment and was really fortunate to learn from some of the leading, you know, academics and mentors in this space. I was really excited by the fact that we were able to help, you know, hundreds of families and quickly became the second largest eating disorder nonprofit in the country. But I was aware that we weren't helping the millions of people who needed help. And also, you know, I, I talk about, we started Project Heal in 2008, which was the same year that the Mental Health Parity Act was passed. And while that's a great law at a high level, you know, says that mental health needs to be covered at the same rate as physical health. Patrick Kennedy, the co-author, is a phenomenal advisor to equip. But we've talked with him about the unintended consequences and, and namely that private equity entered the eating disorder market and the eating disorder treatment landscape started to look really similar to the substance use treatment landscape with lots of rehabs and residentials that cost a lot of money and, and didn't have any evidence backing. And so, you know, I saw this starting this nonprofit at 15 and seeing people have access to residential care and no outpatient care in their communities and said, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so it sort of plagued me. I also always thought 
you know, I think growing up with an interest in psychology and mental health, the smart people around me, the change makers around me were PhDs and MDs. And so I thought that's what you needed to do. I do not like blood. And so an MD was not, uh, not in the cards for me, but I was going to go get my PhD. And so after I uh, graduated from college, I had moved out to work in eating disorder research in the Bay Area. The typical path is that you spend kind of two years as a research assistant before applying to get your PhD. And that's where Aaron and I became friendly um, because I was still running Project Heal at the same time and had actually reached out to UC San Diego uh, to offer treatment grants to our Project Heal beneficiaries. And so that's how we started to get close and get connected. And, you know, we would kind of beeline to one another every six months at these academic conferences. I think a lot of academics like to talk about kind of small micro issues. And we were always like, but the big issue is that 80% of people are not getting access to treatment. How can we solve this? And so she had sort of said to me, look, you, you should come here and get your PhD and you can work and be my grad student. You can continue to run Project Heal. And so I said, yes, that sounds phenomenal. Moved down to San Diego five years ago. And by the time I got down here, we were both kind of like, eh. Maybe getting your PhD isn't the best use of your impact. Maybe you can continue partnering with academia and doing what you're doing. So thank God I, I did that. And then a couple of years later, I said, Aaron, I think academia is also moving too slow for you. We should, uh, we should try a new approach. And, and here we are. Both of your stories and backgrounds are super compelling and your path to founding Equip Together and, and making the jump from, from meeting to starting a company together, really fascinating. I'm curious about how sort of the outside world perceived your interest in starting a venture-backed company. To me, it makes total sense that a clinician and someone who has really decades of experience working on critical issues within the eating disorder space, why that duo would make sense to found a company. But when you were engaging with investors in the early days, do you think that your backgrounds handicapped you, supported you, or, or what, what was sort of the impression from the outside world? I think, you know, the honest truth of the matter is, I think at first, we, we did think we needed somebody with a business background to be kind of a third co-founder to us and, you know, had a number of fits and starts. I think this also goes into the imposter syndrome that I'm sure all founders feel, but I think particularly female founders have a strong sense of imposter syndrome. So, you know, when I started thinking about this idea for a while, I was saying, I need to do a venture studio because, you know, I can't possibly, I, I have the eating disorder expertise, but I, you know, can't, I don't know the business side of it. I can't possibly start this organization. And I think we went through a number of fits and starts. I think Aaron and I are really good at, you know, hire slowly, fire fast, and, you know, came to the realization that we really were the absolute best people to run this business. And I think that has definitely been shown in spades. I mean, we can go into this, but I think a big reason that we've been able to be so successful and we hear this from, from investors, from payers, is that we are really rare in having such deep industry expertise and knowing our patients and families to their core and our providers to their core. We've spent collectively the last 30 years uh, working, working in this field, working really closely with patients and families. And then the other thing that I think Aaron and I really share is a humility in terms of we don't have to be the smartest people in the room. We're really good at figuring out who are the smartest people in the room that we want to bring around the table to really help us uh, do what we need to do. And then I, I think the final thing that I'll share is that sometimes when I say, you know, I'm a, I'm a first time 
founder. And, you know, some people on the team are like, no, you're not. Like in many ways, Aaron and I did have a lot of this kind of entrepreneurial business background, you know, certainly starting and running Project Heal was probably the best uh, intro and preparation that I could have gotten for running this, you know, especially fundraising. Like I spent 90% of my time fundraising at the, at the nonprofit. And let me tell you, for-profit fundraising is actually way easier. And then Aaron, you know, grew that UC San Diego clinic from 20 people to over 100. It was the only clinic that operated in the black of all of the clinics there. Really, and part of the reason that I knew from the very beginning when I was choosing her as my co-founder is like there aren't too many people that have this strong clinical psychology, neuropsychology background, but also really understand the business of mental health. And so in many ways, it was a good reminder in building this that, oh, we actually know a lot more than we thought we did. From everything you've said, it's clear that you both leveraged your your areas of expertise and unique backgrounds and, and brought your authentic selves to this process, which I, I definitely appreciate. So let's now pivot to discussing the area of healthcare that Equip works in, which is eating disorder treatment. And before we get into the specifics of Equip, I want to spend some time educating myself and our listeners on eating disorders, as I think there are some myths that exist on how they affect people. So Christina, when someone has an eating disorder, what's generally happening in their body and mind? And should we think of eating disorders as medical conditions, behavioral conditions, or a combination both. What I really like to describe it as is eating disorders are brain disorders. They have some of the strongest neurobiological and genetic predispositions of any mental illness. And, you know, this is really why we know that in treating them, we need to bring in people who understand them. Because what I like to talk about is you're essentially fighting your brain upwards of six times a day, every single day, facing your greatest fear to to do the things that'll get you to recovery. And then additionally, we know that a core feature of eating disorders is ambivalence about recovery and this term anosognosia, which is uh, we traditionally see in kind of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but it's just a fancy way of saying not knowing how sick you are, lack of insight into the illness. And for these reasons, the old thinking of treating it as an individual illness, trying to motivate somebody to want to eat, to want to like their body really just doesn't work because it's such a powerful brain disorder that tells you every single day, every single second, not to do the things that are actually going to bring you to pro-health. It's also great for people to realize that an eating disorder is an umbrella term. So there's seven different diagnoses that roll up under eating disorders, uh, with the ones being most common that people think about being anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, but also binge eating disorder is an eating disorder and ARFID, which is an acronym that stands for avoidant restrictive food intake disorder is the newest eating disorder. It became an official diagnosis in the DSM in 2016. And then there are a handful of others. Some of these eating disorders have their onset in toddlerhood. So at Equip, we treat five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. Some of these eating disorders have their onset around puberty. Some have their onset around early adulthood, and then others have their onset in adulthood. So eating disorders truly affect the entire lifespan. You're going to see people at age six and people at age 96. Additionally, they affect all genders equally. So about 40% of people who suffer are men. We also treat a large number of non-binary and transgender individuals. We know that eating disorders occur at about five times the frequency in the transgender population. We also treat people of all ethnicities, races, socioeconomic levels, and they occur at equal rates across all of these. Lastly, we know that when food insecurity increases, eating disorders rise. 
So we do see more eating disorders in people who are struggling with poverty, who are struggling with access to food. That's actually a good segue into my next question, which is around research for eating disorder treatment. So I guess just for for some context for our listeners, about 9% of the US population or 30 million Americans will have an eating disorder at some point in their life, which shocked me. And I think what then shocked me just due to the high number of people that were affected was the fact that according to a JAMA psychiatry article, the estimated financial value of medical research for eating disorders in 2018 and 2019 was $49.8 million, which translate to about $9 per person with an eating disorder. Yet for Alzheimer's, we see $239 per individual. For autism, $109 per individual. Schizophrenia, $69 per individual. And while those all definitely deserve research dollars as well. What do you think accounts for there being such little investment in eating disorder research in comparison to to other uh, psychiatric or neurological conditions, Erin? Kate, when that article came out, we were all like, yes, we've come up from 75 cents. So for the previous oh, like, wow. 15 years, yeah, it was 75 cents per patient, where the next lowest was $75 per patient. So eating disorders have been, I mean, I've heard it said in a couple of different ways, but they're they're the black sheep of mental health disorders. And so the same way that when you think about health, mental health is the one on the side. When you think about mental health, eating disorders are the one that are the most discriminated against. A couple of things result from that. So one, there's less federal research dollars that happen to fund things. The hypothesis is that anytime you think somebody causes something and that it's their fault, you're less likely to fund it. So that's one of the reasons why there used to be a discrepantly low amount of funding for lung cancer research, for instance. Same thing though with schizophrenia and autism. There was a time when we used to think it was the parent's fault and the funding was a lot less then. So as we take blame away and recognize that these are neurological disorders or brain disorders or case of lung cancer or something that can randomly occur then we see the funding increase. But for whatever reason, we still have not let go of the fact that eating disorders are either caused by the parents or they are the person who's suffering's fault. And because we can't get over that, NIH continues to underfund it. But even if you do get funded for eating disorder research, you're significantly less likely to get published in a top tier journal than any other mental health disorder. Uh, Dr. Cindy Bulick at UNC published a fantastic article examining the number of pages in academic journals that were dedicated to eating disorders relative to other things. And it's something like 10 times harder to get published in a non-specialty journal if you're writing about eating disorders. So now let's talk about Equip and your care model. So I know that Equip provides family-based therapy, which is the most effective treatment known for treating eating disorders. So Christina, can you share what family-based therapy is and how it's different from the most common or standard methods of treating eating disorders? Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, you know, family-based treatment at a high level takes the healthy people in the house to structure the home environment for pro-health behaviors. And it's really based on that understanding of eating disorders being brain disorders. Again, for an illness that requires you to fight your brain upwards of six times a day, it's not only ineffective, but it's mean actually to treat it as an individual illness. You really need people around you to help you structure um, your home for pro health. And it's, you know, different from other forms of treatment, which again, we're really not understanding the neurobiology of eating disorders and such did treat them as an individual illness and really thought we need to motivate people to want to get better before we 
feed them and act on the behaviors. And that's wrong because they're brain disorders. And also because we know that eating disorders largely are symptoms of starvation. Um, Your brain is not thinking accurately when you are in an eating disorder. There's one of our favorite studies to cite in the eating disorder field is the Minnesota male starvation study, um, you know, done several decades ago when they didn't have IRBs and they took 25 totally physically, psychologically healthy men and essentially starved them to basically look at the effects of starvation on the human body and found that these these men who were you know perfectly physically and, and psychologically healthy, no comorbidities before that, started exhibiting a lot of the symptoms and behaviors that we now recognize as eating disorder symptoms and behaviors, increases in anxiety and depression and compulsivity. Um, so you can see, you know, to somebody who's not even genetically predisposed predisposed to an eating disorder, the effects of starvation on the human body really set you up to to not be successful in this treatment. And so we know that full weight restoration, full nutritional rehabilitation is absolutely critical as a first step. And then you really need people around you to help you structure that home environment. Unfortunately, while we've known this for the last over 20 years, multiple randomized controlled trials, it's been you know published on Amazon, it has just been stuck in academia and has not been disseminated to the community. And so what's happened is that you have something like 5,000 eating disorder specialists in the community who, you know, I put specialists in air quotes, call themselves eating disorder specialists, 20% of them use evidence-based treatment. And not only do you need to really treat an eating disorder one provider, you really need a multidisciplinary care team. These are, um, you know, these are mental health issues, but they're also medical issues. They have, again, the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. So you need therapist, a dietitian, a physician, a psychiatrist to prescribe meds. And it's pretty impossible to find this entire care team in your community, to find the care team that's covered by insurance, and to find a care team that's talking to one another, that's coordinated. Erin and I would see time and time again, families in the community who the therapist would say, you got to gain 10 pounds. The dietitian would say, you got to gain 20 pounds. And the PCP would say, this is a phase. Parents, don't be involved. The opposite of evidence-based treatment. And unfortunately, in this kind of vacuum of outpatient treatment, residentials have really emerged as sort of the go-to and have really convinced a lot of families that when you have an eating disorder, you have to start at that intensive level of care, despite there being no evidence that that's true. And you know, frankly, emerging evidence, and I, can, I certainly can speak to this from my own personal experience, that it's actually pretty harmful. You know, I was, I always talk about, I was sick before the days of the fancy residentials. I was in and out of uh, inpatient hospitals when I was 13, missed my entire freshman year of high school. And frankly, I love treatment, right? It was safe. It was easy. I didn't have to deal with triggers. The hard part was coming out and doing it in life. And it only got harder the more I went in and out. So, you know, I was really fortunate that my parents found FBT and that was my road to recovery. But it has been really, really horrifying to see people that I was in treatment with now for 15 years ago who are still cycling in and out of residentials and haven't been introduced to evidence-based care. So actually going back sort of to where we were a bit ago, we know that there's family-based therapy and you both had met and were excited to bring this evidence-based model to Gail. So what made you confident or at least confident enough to to see that this model could be be done in a virtual setting 
and really could be delivered at scale. Because I think just from some some interviews with Pulse guests, I'm hearing this trend of things getting stuck in academia and having a hard time getting getting out of it to larger population. So so what what made you confident, Aaron, that this model could could work at scale? Yeah, so we knew that the model worked. So we had 20 years of evidence, several randomized controlled trials. We also were fortunate that there had already been a randomized controlled trial comparing it being delivered via telehealth versus in person. And we knew that it worked just as well. I think that the missing piece that we've seen perhaps with other companies of why some things worked in academia but doesn't work at scale is because of the very important piece of training. And that is an area that our current VP of clinical programs, uh, Dr. Kara Bohan, that was what she'd made her living doing was researching how do you train people in evidence-based treatments. And you cannot give up that essential aspect of building your company, which is how are you going to train your providers? We've also watched a lot of companies go with a 1099 employment model for their providers. So the provider will say, oh, I do evidence-based treatment for eating disorders, or maybe even I know FBT. And then you're like, great, here you go. Here's a client for you. That doesn't work. We're not seeing that work at scale. We're seeing poor outcomes. We're seeing poor engagement. And thus, we chose to do a W-2 employment model for our providers. We train all of our providers ourselves. We offer them supervision. We watch their sessions and grade them for fidelity to the model. And there is a way to do that at scale. However, you have to have a solid foundation of great training principles. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, we always knew this needed to be 100% virtual because access was our North Star. And as I mentioned, there are 5,000 meetings for specialists in the country for 5 billion people every year who will suffer from an eating disorder. And so we were always going to build it that way. But truly, two years into operations, we're like virtual first is best for eating disorders. And it's for two big reasons. The, the first is that I talk a lot about this idea that you can't build a life worth living if you're not living life. I mean, certainly seeing that for my folks who've spent the last 15 years in and out of residential, haven't finished high school, finished college, held a real relationship, a real job makes getting into recovery way, way harder. But also, you know, when I was a 10-year-old and going to four different doctors a week, I didn't have time to be in soccer, to be in theater, to go to my friend's house to hang out, to build that life worth living. And it also, you know, my parents were both working professionals, would have to like leave their jobs early, figure out childcare for my younger brother. It was rare that they could both attend a session. So that's the second thing, this ability to really tag in your entire village and support system. I mean, as Erin knows, like raising kids is really hard. She needs her whole village to do it for two healthy kids. And certainly for this illness where treatment is, is hard and it, it works better when you can pop in two parents, grandma, grandpa, babysitter, aunt and uncle. And, and we have families doing that in a way that would just never be possible in brick and mortar. I find the peer and family mentor part of the model particularly interesting. So each patient gets a peer mentor who is someone who has recovered from an eating disorder, as well as a family mentor who's someone who's helped a loved one overcome an eating disorder. And I really like this because it's the sort of thing that's talked a lot about in healthcare, but partly due to reimbursement models under fee-for-service these types of roles and responsibilities often don't get reimbursed. So we see it less often than, than we'd like to. So it's, it's great to see that it's a core tenet of this model. 
Erin, for, for our listeners who might be less familiar with these roles, can you describe the responsibilities for individuals in the, the peer and family mentor roles and the value they bring to the treatment experience? Yes. So our peer mentors are people who have recovered themselves from an eating disorder, and now they're employees of Equip, and they work with patients. This has been incredibly valuable and, and maybe the secret sauce because, as Christina mentioned earlier, Ego, eating disorders are egocentric. What that means is if you are anxious, you want to stop being anxious. If you're depressed, you want to stop being depressed. But there's usually an aspect of an eating disorder that's hard to let go of. And most patients are ambivalent. There's a part of them that wants to get better, but a part of them that's very scared to do that. The peer mentor is showing them someone who has gone through that fear and made it out on the other side. They meet regularly with their peer mentor and talk about how to use skills, how to fight triggers, and how to build a life worth living. A lot of other treatment centers have patients spending a lot of time with other people who are actively sick. Christina speaks frequently and very eloquently about how much she looked up to the sickest people that were in treatment with her. Maybe one day I'd get to be like that person. I'd be the queen bee of the treatment center. And we also know that there's a contagion effect that can sometimes happen when people who are ill are together because it is an egocentric illness. So peer mentorship shows them full recovery as possible. Here's someone who's recovered. The family mentor is a similar role. So this is someone who has already helped their loved one through an eating disorder. Right now, as we're focused on adolescents, these are parents who've helped their kids through an eating disorder. This has been wonderful. It was something that was pioneered at UC San Diego. And what it does is give you someone who's been in the trenches before. Someone who can say, I've been there. I understand what it's like to watch your child turn into maybe a monster, to turn into someone who isn't, who's acting against their values. Family mentors can also be really helpful at saying the things that don't land as well if they were to come from your therapist or your physician. So they can hold up a mirror and say, listen, I used to be like you. I used to eat a salad while I made my ill child eat fettuccine Alfredo. But what message are you sending to them? One thing I want to add that's unique about us though, is that we're using mentorship in a way that allows people to use their in-network benefits. We see a lot right now in the telehealth space of people using mentors, coaches, other types of unlicensed professionals. However, only in a direct-to-consumer model. We're very excited that we can give this whole five-person treatment team to people and they can utilize their in-network benefits. So I, I know that over the last few months, you have really expanded your network to cover, I believe it's half the US population, which is really impressive and exciting. And as you've mentioned, a lot of treatment for eating disorders historically hasn't been covered by insurance or it has to to a limited degree. Yet it sounds like payers are, are pretty eager and willing to cover your your services. So so what do you make what do you think makes them willing to engage with your program and, and make it in-network? What makes it attractive to payers? Both the payers and us at Equip, we understood some of the holes in the treatment landscape. So insurance has been covering eating disorder services since 2008, since the mental health parity law was signed into effect. One of the difficulties has been, though, that not a lot of people treat eating disorders. I went to school for really long time, eight years, nine years, I got zero hours of eating disorder treatment. And there was a a study done researching therapists and dietitians, and the average number of hours of training they all received was also zero hours of training. So insurance has been willing to pay for the various levels of care, but there's been a shortage of who people can go to. 
in the absence of having enough people on the ground to take all the patients, we've seen a proliferation of the residential model of treatment. So that is where someone leaves their home and goes and lives someplace for 30, 60, 90 days and receives around-the-clock care. Oftentimes, people will get a little bit better while they're there, and then insurance will stop authorizing it and say, okay, it's time for you to step down to a lower level of care. There are altogether five different levels of care. We have outpatient, IOP, which stands for intensive outpatient, PHP, which stands for partial hospitalization. It's like day treatment, residential. All of those are technically considered outpatient because then there's the fifth level of care inpatient. When you're in a medical hospital, either because you are medically unstable. So about a third of our patients come to us directly from medical hospitals. It's very, as it's the second deadliest of all mental health illnesses. That's why you see such a high hospitalization rate or people end up in inpatient psychiatric wards. What insurance was recognizing, what we were recognizing from talking to thousands and thousands of families is that people would go away to these residential centers, but then they'd return home. And even though insurance said, we will pay for your treatment, there's no in-network providers. The few that exist are full for six or eight months. So that is why it was so important for us to build out this bottom rung, to build out the outpatient level of care so that people wouldn't have to leave their homes and they could stay at soccer practice and stay in play rehearsals and stay with their siblings because we knew that that is one, what's best for patients so that they can build a life worth living. But we also knew that that would be the most cost-effective for payers. The last thing I'll say to this is that while some of the residentials do good work, we're concerned that the model itself may be flawed as we're seeing as high of 50% relapse rates of people returning to residential within seven months of leaving. And that's what payers are seeing as well. And we think that one of the reasons people are relapsing is there is no care for them once they come back home. So equip has tried to meet the need of replacing several different levels of care so that you're not having to change treatment teams every two to three months, every time you change level of care, and that all of it is in network. Well, it's awesome to hear a lot about where Equip has been. And I I want to talk a bit about where you all are going. And obviously, I'm sure there are big plans for the future in light of your Series B announcement have $58 million. So congrats on that. But what is the next year or so for Equip look like? How are you planning to, to use this funding? We've been really busy. A year ago this time, we were just opening in three states, just signing our first payer partner. So as we get this new influx of capital, we have now signed 11 payers with many more coming. Uh, We're now in, I lose count every day, Christina, 30, 40 states at this point, but we'll be in all 50 states by June. We're looking forward to turning on our adult program at the end of this year. Right now, we're treating kids around, um, our youngest is five and our oldest is 24. And we are also really excited about turning on more Medicaid plans. So we turned on our first Medicaid plan as last year came to a close. And that is definitely one of our goals with this fundraise. Christina, do you want to say a little bit more about what we want to do with the cultural narrative with this uh, these funds? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, Aaron made me promise that uh, we would not shout it from the rooftops until we were so clear that this worked just as well as, you know, when we had tens of patients as it did as we had hundreds of patients, right? And so as we're clear on that, and the great news is it continues to work even better. We continue to, our clinical outcomes continue to be stronger and that we have more broad-based coverage, um, both with payers and in different states. We're really ready to shout it from the rooftops. I think, you know, we think a lot about 
not only the 20% of folks who are getting, you know, probably not great treatment, but also the 80% of folks who haven't been diagnosed, who don't fit that cultural stereotype, who really have been lacking treatment for years and years, we want to reach them. So a big part of our mission this year is to disrupt this cultural narrative of eating disorders being a vanity issue of choice of, you know, thin white girls and really helping people understand that everybody suffers with an eating disorder. These are brain disorders and full recovery is possible. Teasing a big part of how we'll do that in, in addition to launching adults is we're, we're working on a prevention program that's similarly been in the literature for over 20 years and has not has not been able to make it to the community setting, um, but really helps people to fight against some of the horrible cultural narratives and cultural thin ideals and uh, diet culture that we're all bombarded with every day and gives them the tools to fight back to that. Going back to your point about working with Medicaid plans, what are some of the unique elements of, of building those partnerships that, that you've experienced as compared to, to commercial plans? I think one challenge has been recognizing that many members that are utilizing Medicaid are under-resourced in lots of areas of their life. So not only have they not had access to excellent mental health treatment or eating disorder treatment, They also are not having access to food. We see a lot of food insecurity. They're also not having access to reliable technology. And so at Equip, we're making sure that we're not just claiming to be increasing access by throwing our treatment on the internet. Rather, we are making sure that we're increasing access in all the ways that access is defined. So an example of what that might look like, all of our families are assigned family navigators that can help with many different things that get complicated when you're dealing with an eating disorder. So this could be a 504 plan or an IEP so that the school will allow them to eat in between, you know, in between classes or during a class. But this also might be helping them work with their communities to get free Wi-Fi or internet connection. Or it might mean us sending them a hotspot until they can get reliable internet. It could be us sending them devices or finding access to programs in their community that have devices. It also means employing people that are familiar with and experienced with SNAP benefits so that when our dietitians are making a meal plan, they're making a meal plan that's culturally aligned, that's financially aligned, that's accessible to the family. Really interesting. And I love how deeply your team is thinking about the experiences of your patients and members beyond just the pure medical experience and how their treatment intersects with all elements of their lives because it it returns to your point about how you need to, to, to develop and create a life worth living. And this is really where we benefit from. It's not hyperbole to say we've met thousands and thousands of families. And it is from having these, each of us, you know, collectively 30 years of experience that we've seen why some people have gotten excellent treatment, but it hasn't stuck or why some people were given some of the resources, but not all, and why it didn't work. So it gave us a great sense of what we needed to build. So going to leadership, and I want to take advantage of the fact that I think this is the first time on The Pulse that we've had two guests in the same episode. It'll be really valuable for our listeners to hear from two co-founders and the experience of being a part of that that relationship and building something together. So to start, Erin, I'm curious, what's a lesson that you've learned from Christina during your your time working on Equip together? I've learned a lot from Christina. I will start with, can I say more than one thing? Because I think there's been three big things that I've learned. The first is I'm in my 40s. 
it's been a long time since I spent this much time with someone in their 20s. It has been amazing to remember what it felt like to think anything is possible. And not to say that only, you know, only our youth have that trait, but I think it's especially prevalent in people who are younger. And I think sometimes life beats it out of you. And I remember being a much more optimistic, idealistic, anything is possible type person. And I've, I've lost that part of myself. And so spending this much time with Christina, it reminded me how much anything is possible if you're really... I mean, all the stars have to align, but also if you're really willing to dream that big. I think Katie Couric joining us is such a great example of that. There was a time when we were talking about like, oh, if we could have any celebrity, what celebrity would it be? And people had brainstormed some ideas that I strongly disagreed with. I'm like, no, you are all thinking of the wrong person. We need someone like Katie Couric. We need some, but I kept saying someone like Katie Kirk. Christine's like, well, why don't we just ask Katie Kirk? I can't do that. And sure enough, we did. And she said, yes. And she's been an amazing, amazing person to be added to our team. So yes, that's one thing that I definitely learned from Christina is how to see the blue sky again. I think the second thing that she'll never be able to fully teach me because this is where we're a yin yang and it's really positive for us is the idea that not everything needs to be perfect. I am definitely someone that likes things to be perfect. I like to think and think and work and work. And that comes from academia where you would work on something for five years before you'd ever dream of telling 10 people about it. And you can't do that in startup life. And she is a constant reminder that really only maybe 20% of things need to be perfect. The other 80% just need to get done. So she's helping me to work on my done to perfection balance. We're really, really good yin-yang. Um, and I think you'll see it, it reflected in the answers. So I think Aaron reminds me to pause and to slow down and helps me with that growing edge of, you know, while yes, 80% of things can be fast, 20% of things should be slow and thoughtful. And, you know, just taking even a, a short pause just to remember the why, remember the context, remember the audience, and also pause and think about, do I need to send this today? Can I sleep on it and send it on Monday? Can this actually be you know, done in a month and done much better in a month? Um, that's been incredibly invaluable. And I think the combination of those two things make us such a power couple. And then the other thing I'll say is, you know, something that's really nice about, you know, having a, a co-founder a decade my senior is that she reminds me to be a little bit nicer to myself. Uh, she's just you know, had had more reps and seen more things. And so sometimes when I think that, you know, the world is falling down and I'm really beating myself up, she reminds me to be kinder to myself. And just because, you know, you make a mistake doesn't mean that it reflects anything about you as a human and you just pick yourself up and you get right back. I I love all of that. And I think it reflects how not only is choosing a co-founder important, but also choosing one that that complements you is really key. So I guess zooming out a bit from, from your experience, but still based on your experience, obviously. Erin, what's a piece of advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs on selecting a co-founder? First, to have one. I don't understand... Christina and I say this regularly. We do not understand how people do this alone. It, I mean, we have each other and it's still kind of lonely. It's hard to explain to people what you're doing. I still have lots of friends who think that I run a group practice and that's just fine. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to explain venture capital or whatever. I'm like, yes, the group practice is going great. It's such unique work. The speed is something that I, I could never have believed people told us about it, but until I experienced it, it's fascinating that things that happened two days ago feel like they happened a month ago. But yeah, so my first advice is 
definitely 100% have a co-founder. But then I would say pick the right one. This is the difference of us. We we saw him flip flop and really love it uh, in terms of going fast and being thoughtful. But you know, I think we really heard early on that the number one killer of early stage companies was choosing the wrong co-founder. And I totally get that. <laughs> now on the other side of it, I think this is a marriage. It is truly like Aaron is my spouse. Uh, <laughs> We probably spend more time together than we do with our actual spouses. And so really making sure that it's somebody that you enjoy spending time with, respect tremendously, feel that you can learn from, feel that you can laugh with. And, you know, we we went and, uh, you know, like good students that we were with a bunch of great questions online in terms of like just questions to ask yourself of your co-founder. What are the cultural values that I want to inculcate in this company? How do I want to think about when really bad stuff happens? What are the What's the mission that is going to be at the forefront? What kind of investors do we want around the table? What's going to happen when we disagree? And really asking those questions up front, it, it really, really helps you to make sure that you're going to have a strong and successful relationship. So my last question on the co-founder experience as a first-time founder, what has surprised you most about this role? I mean, I'm surprised by how much I'm enjoying it, <laughs> which perhaps a lot of the listeners of The Pulse are people who already knew they wanted to be entrepreneurs. I didn't know that I necessarily wanted to do this. And wow, I am having the time of my life. I've never worked harder. I've never been more tired. I've never known this level of stress, but I'd also never known this level of pride and excitement and accomplishment. I didn't know it would be this fun. I'm having a really good time. Something we we talk about a lot is there are no more brick walls in this job. There's no lack of resources. There's no bureaucratic academia. There are just puzzles and there are some really hard puzzles, some really complicated puzzles and nuanced puzzles. But there's this feeling of like with the right people around the table and we have so many amazing people around the table, our team, our investors, our advisors, we can can kind of figure anything out. And that feels really good. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with both of you. I really enjoyed hearing about Equip's pair model, where you see the company going in the future and getting to know both of you as individuals and and learning about how you work together. I enjoyed it too, Kate. Thank you so much for inviting us to be on the pulse.